I'm so happy to be with you tonight. I certainly appreciate the opportunity once again to be at Vestavia and see everyone here, not only from this church, but from other places as well. Um, happy to have my wife, Karen, with me. Uh, it always makes me feel a little better. I know I can have at least one person praying for me, but I, I hope all of you have been in much prayer for the meeting. Um, whenever I'm reading through the Bible, which I try to do on a daily basis, no matter how many times I've read the Bible in the past, which has been quite a few times, I've tried to make a habit of reading the Bible all the way through for quite a number of years. And in fact, I think I've read it all the way through 48 times, working on number 49. And it's not that hard. All you got to do is just be determined to do it. And you start in January and you read so much a day. And first thing you know, it's December and you got it read. And you start all over again. But some of the lessons I've learned from all that is that the more I've read and studied, the more I realize how little I know. And the more I read and study, the more I realize how much there is to know. And I don't know of another book, there is not another book, period, in all the history of mankind that you can read and say that about. You just can't. Anybody that read and study the scriptures honestly and sincerely, I think would have to confess that this could not be the work of the minds of men it would have to be the work of the mind of God. And as I'm reading through, every once in a while, I'll come across something that just kind of stops me in my tracks. Just a statement I've probably read it many times before. But for whatever reason, it just kind of stops me. And I think about it, and it just causes me to uh, think how great God is. And I want to take a look at a few of those places tonight that I've run across in my experience. I'd like to begin tonight in Genesis chapter 18. In Genesis 18, you're going to find where the Lord asks a question. He says, anything too hard for the Lord? Now, that question was in response to Abraham and Sarah after God had promised that he would return at a certain time the next year and Sarah would conceive and bring forth a son. See, that means she was going to have that child when she was 90 years old. And Abraham was going to have that son when he was 100. The Bible says that Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in years. I got to thinking about that not too long ago. Well, what does that mean? Old and well stricken in years. And I've come to realize it just means you're really old. You see, there's old and really old. And if you're old and well stricken in years, you've been here a while. So Abraham and Sarah had been here a while. 90 and 100 years of age, been here a while. When Sarah heard it, she laughed at it. She was behind the door. The Lord responded by saying, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, it was going to take the Lord to bring this to pass, obviously. In fact, this is such a monumental event that the Apostle Paul is inspired of God, or God inspires him to write the fourth chapter of the book of Romans, which is all about the experience of Abraham. And we come up about verses 18 and 19, it says, And Abraham, being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body and the deadness of Sarah's womb at this time. Therefore, by not considering that, notice what he did not consider. If he had considered his own body and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he'd have been weak in faith. But he was not weak in faith because he did not consider that. He did not consider the circumstances of that. 
And therefore, he staggered not at the promises of God. Now, some of God's promises can stagger you. I call this a staggering promise, wouldn't you? If the Lord came to you tonight and you're past 70 or 80 or whatever it may be, and uh, you feel like the Lord told you you was going to have another child, I think you'd probably be getting up off your back. I just got a feeling that would just be a staggering statement that the Lord would make to you. But he staggered not at the promise of God because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And that helps me a lot in my daily trials. I don't know about you, in the daily challenges of life, it helps me to just think about, is there anything too hard for the Lord? I know it's not. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. There's a lot of things too hard for me. A lot of things too hard for you. Some things are harder than others, but there's simply nothing that's too hard for the Lord. And the Lord kept his promise. At the same time, the next year, he appeared, and sure enough, Sarah conceived, and she brought forth a son. Of course, his name was Isaac, and he was a miracle child, uh, supernatural conception, God intervening providentially, blessing her to conceive just like he said that she would. Is there anything too hard for the Lord tonight? Facing everything we're facing in life today, I think it's important we keep that in mind. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Well, the answer is an emphatic no. Uh, some of the questions in the Bible have implied answers. <laughs> Here's one of them. I hope you didn't get this answer wrong tonight. Okay. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Well, no. Similar situations over here in the book of Numbers, chapter 11, and you'll find where Moses now is leading the nation of Israel, and he's having all kinds of problems with them. The nation of Israel is always murmuring and complaining. They, they really specialized in it. You know, some people do that. Some people are specialists when it comes to complaining. They're specialists when it comes to, to murmuring. In fact, I don't think you could be a real New Testament church if you didn't have a brother complainer and a sister murmur in your congregation. I think that's just absolutely required. It's one of the identifying marks of a New Testament church. You've got to have at least one. I used to think you couldn't have a New Testament church unless you had one person like the Apostle Peter. But I don't think we need two. <laughs> one, one to take care of the situation. And the Bible opens up in Numbers 11 the saying, and the children of Israel complained. Now, I think there's a difference in complaining and explaining. Sometimes I may be saying something and Karen may think I'm complaining. And I say, well, I'm not complaining. I'm just explaining. I think there's a big difference there. And sometimes I'll ask somebody how they're doing. They say, well, I can't complain. And I, and I know them. And I say, I bet with a little encouragement you could. And it wouldn't take probably just another, another asking you. And you probably would be a good complainer. But they complained and they were specialists at it. They just they did it all the time. And this very much displeased the Lord, because I believe when you complain, you're really displaying an attitude that you're not thankful for what God has done for you. We have too much to be thankful for, too much of what God's done for us that's uh, uh, so wonderful, so great to be complainers. But it's, we're just prone to do that. It's in our depraved nature to be a complainer. And so they were complaining. And the Lord was very displeased. And he said, well, I'm, I'm going to feed you. He said, I'm going to give you so much food, you won't be able to collect it and eat it all in a day, two days, five days, ten days, or thirty days. And when Moses heard the Lord tell the people that, Moses said to the Lord, he said, Lord, he says, well, what am I supposed to do? He says, there are 600,000 footmen in our place, in, in, in our, you know, here among them. Am I going to have to catch all the fish in the sea? 
Am I going to have to slay all the cattle and all the oxen and everything else to feed this many people? Uh, how, how, how am I going to be able to do all that kind of stuff? And the Lord said unto Moses, is the hand of the Lord waxed short? Is the hand of the Lord waxed short? Has God overpromised? And I can overpromise and you can overpromise, but God can't overpromise. God has never overpromised. That's what Joshua told him in his last days. The children of Israel, and he was also old and well-stricken in years and didn't have much time left on this earth. And he told the nation of Israel, he got them together. And some of his last words was this, not one thing that God has promised has ever failed to come to pass, not one. Everything that he had stated he would do, he had done. All this promise has been fulfilled to a jot and to a tittle. God cannot overpromise. He knows the future. He knows his power. He cannot overpromise. Is the hand of the Lord waxed short? That he cannot fulfill this promise? He said, but that you may know that my word shall come to pass. The Lord went ahead and done exactly what he said he was going to do. He caused the quails to come up from the sea. Says they were two cubits high, which be about three feet. A day's journey this way and a day's journey that way. Um, everywhere they looked, there, there was the food. Just like the Lord said, uh, they gathered it not just for a day or two or five or ten, but they gathered a 30-day supply there at one time. In fact, they ate it so much that they became sick on it. The Lord was very displeased with them, and the Lord showed his great power. And again, the question he asked to Moses. Now, remember the first question, anything too hard for the Lord is a question he didn't just ask anybody. He asked Abraham and Sarah that question. And now he's asking Moses that question. They've seen his power in times past. Is the hand of the Lord waxed short that he cannot perform what the Lord has said? I can tell you tonight, the Lord's hand is not waxed short. We, we don't believe in a, in a shorthand God or a short-arm God, do we? We believe that the Lord's hand and his arm is just as powerful as it needs to be. It's just as long as it needs to be. Uh, somebody says, oh, how, how long is the hand of the Lord in the arm? It's just as long as it needs to be to reach your case. Whatever that might be, it's just, it's just that long. His ear is not too hard, he cannot hear. His, his eyes are not dim that he cannot see. His arm is not too short that he cannot say. We simply don't believe in a short-armed God. So I can remember reading this, you know, that just caused me to stop and ponder for a minute. Is the hand of the Lord waxed short? No, it is not. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? No, it is not. In the book of 1 Kings chapter 20, you read where the Syrians had come out to do battle against the Israelites. And the Israelites had uh, emerged victorious of them quite easily. And we find where some of the servants came to the king and they said to the king of Syria, says, uh, their gods, and notice they called them gods. See, all the nations that day had territorial gods, but they were all little gods. They were all lifeless gods. Uh, the difference between the true and living God and all other gods has ever been in this world is the fact that only one has life, and that's the true and living God. Our God is where life comes from. And so they said their gods are gods of the hills, but they're not gods of the plains, which means the gods of the valleys. See, if we get them in the plains over here, he says, we'll win. We'll win. Well, see, God hears all this. And that was like an insult to God. And the servant, the servant of God came to the king. And he says, thus saith the Lord. They have said that I'm a God only of the hills. They shall know that I'm also a God of the plains. And that day he delivered in their hands 
100,000 that were slain that day. That was just insulting God, what they did. See, our God's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent, isn't he? In the book of Jeremiah 23, 23, the Lord asked three questions. He said, am I a God afar off and not a God nearby? Can any man hide himself in secret places that I cannot see him? Is what's the answer to those two questions? Is he just a God afar off and not a God nearby? Is he just can be in one location at a time and not in various locations at the same time? Can somebody hide themselves in secret places and God cannot see them? I hope you're getting the right answers to this. <laughs> see, he's omniscient. He's omnipresent, is he not? Well, even Martha had to learn that lesson when her brother Lazarus passed away. When the Lord got there four days later, she said, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. That wasn't the problem. The Lord could have kept him alive right where he was at, just as easily could right beside where he was at when he passed away. It wasn't the fact that the Lord wasn't able to help because he wasn't there. In his humanity, he wasn't there, but in his divinity, he was quite there. He could have kept him alive without ever showing up, you know, in, in this present person. But Martha, in her grief, made that statement. If you'd only been here, Lord. Listen, I'm going to tell you, the Lord's always been where he needs to be. There's never been a time when the Lord was not where he was supposed to be. And you might think that in your mind. You might not say it, but you may have thought that. But this Lord, where are you? Well, the Lord's there. The Lord's there. There are lessons we learn in life, uh, you know, that makes us sometimes think these kind of things. But the Lord is there. So Martha said, Lord, if you'd just been here, my brother would not have died. Well, the Lord raised him back from the dead, didn't he? He certainly did that. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? No, it isn't. Is the hand of the Lord whacked short? No, it is not. Uh, is he just a God of the hills and not a God of the plains? No, he's a God that's everywhere. I have found the Lord everywhere I've ever been. Uh, I've found him on top of the mountains. I found him in the valleys. I found him at home. I found him in the yard. I found him by my steering wheel. I found him in the hospitals. I found him in the funeral homes. I found him in the house of God. I have found him wherever I've been. I've been able to find the Lord. All I've had to do was just call his name. Amen. That's all I had to do. Just call his name. Just call his name. He's not just the God of the hills. And they learned that lesson. The Syrians learned that lesson very, very costly, did they not? In the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 25, the king of Judah, Jerusalem, is about to go out to do battle, and he has hired 100,000 soldiers from Israel. 100,000. And he's paid them 100 talents of gold. And a man of God comes to him, and he tells the king that God's not going to bless you in this because, see, Israel had been very idolatrous in the sight of God, and God was not with them, and God was not going to bless them. He says, the thing for you to do is send that 100,000 soldiers, you send them back home. You know what the king said? He said, well, I've already paid them. He said, I've already paid them. You know, I think it was 100,000 gold, I think it was silver, but I've already paid them. What am I going to do about that? And the prophet said unto him, the Lord's able to give thee much more than that. I remember reading that and it just jumped out at me. The Lord's able to do much more than that. You think he's going to cost you a hundred talents of silver to send them back? 
The Lord's able to replace that. The Lord's able to give you far more than that. That's been my experience in life. What about yours? I had made mention about this one time in, in a message, and a brother came up to me after church. He said, you know, I, I came here tonight already knowing what I was going to contribute to, to the meeting. Already had it. Or uh, set aside, etc." He said, but you got to uh, preaching all that. He says, I just reached out and dug a little deeper. <laughs> I just dug a little deeper. And I, and I put more up there, and I intended to give. He said, I, quite frankly, I was kind of concerned about it. He said, two days later, a man came and gave me $200 on a job I'd done for him that I'd already built him. He'd already paid me. And I told him that. He says, I know that. He said, but I, think you, I just think you undercharged me. And he said, I'm going to give you $200 more. The Lord's able to give you much more than that, is he not? Much more than that. Not just make it up, but much more than that. Now, if you'll come two chapters later, in chapter 27, you'll find where his grandson has been in battle, and he's won the battle, and the rewards of that battle were exactly the same amount that he had paid the other, the, the hundred, his grandfather had paid Israel for the soldiers, plus a hundred, I think it was uh, 10,000 measures of barley and 10,000 uh, measures of another grain. So you see, he got the investment back, plus a whole lot more, took a little time down the road, but it came back just like he told him, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. You know, we are really strong on the shells in God's word, aren't we? We like to bear down on the shells. Uh, that's why I understand they call us hard shells because we bear down on the shells. And, and I love the shalls. Uh, the word shall really means with ideal, perfect certainty. There can be no chance of failure or whatever. That's why we love Matthew one twenty one like we do. When the angel came to Joseph and said unto him, Fear not to take unto Mary to be thy wife. That was a conceit of hers of the Holy Ghost. You know, she shall conceive and bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. There's three shalls there. And you'll get most everybody to agree with you on shall one and shall two. It's shall three where we kind of part company. She did conceive, did she not? They did call his name Jesus, did they not? And we believe he saved his people from their sins. We believe that shall. But you know, some other kind of shalls like this is what I'm getting to in Matthew 6, 33, where the Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples, he says, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and these things shall be added to you. Now, that's a little bit of a different situation. I'm telling you, that shall is just as powerful as your shalls in Matthew 121. Just as powerful. Now, let's go back and get the context of that. When the Lord told his disciples, he said, you not, cannot serve God and mammon at the same time. He says, you'll either love one or hate the other, hold the one, despise the other. It's just an impossibility. He didn't say it'd be hard to do it. He said, you can't do it. There's a lot of difference in something hard to do and something you can't do. He says, you cannot serve God and mammon at the same time. It, it, it's like the story of the, of the man who uh, didn't want to take sides in the Civil War. He didn't want to fight for the North. He didn't want to fight for the South. So he put on a blue shirt and gray pants. And so the South shot him in the shirt and the North shot him in the pants. And so it, it just didn't work, did it? It just didn't work. Uh, you know, you got you to gotta take a stand. And I believe the Lord's people in this day and age need to take a stand on a lot of other things. But anyway, he said, you cannot serve God in mammon. He said, I want you to consider something. He said, I want you to consider the fowls of the air, how they sow not and they reap not and they, they store not. And I want you to consider the lilies of the field, how they toil not nor spin not. 
said, some of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. In other words, God takes care of the birds, takes care of the sparrows. They don't sow, they don't reap, yet God feeds them and takes care of them. And the lilies out here, Solomon had all the money in the world to wear the finest garments man or money could buy. They said, he in all of his glory cannot be compared to the lilies out here, the field that toil not nor spin not. He said, now take no thought for tomorrow, for sufficient for the days the evil thereof. Now, there's two days that give us a lot of trouble in life. That's yesterday and tomorrow. That's the two days that give me the most trouble. Uh, yesterday's history, I can't do anything about it, but somehow or another, I keep thinking about it. You know, what I could have done different, what I should have done, didn't do one thing, no, it's history. <laughs> if I'm not careful, I'll let yesterday ruin today. And then there's tomorrow. I'm thinking about what I'm going to be doing tomorrow. Now, some of y'all might be thinking about that tonight. I hope not. You know, you're here. Just don't worry about tomorrow. The Lord might come back before I finish tonight. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Well, don't say amen too quick. <laughs> No, I'll amen the amen. But if you're thinking tomorrow, about things tomorrow, when you're supposed to be focusing on the word of God, you're not going to get the blessing. You're not going to get the impact of the message. You can let yesterday ruin today. You can let tomorrow ruin today. And you know, there is going to come a time where there will not be a tomorrow. So sufficient for the days of evil thereof. you got enough on your plate today without... Barring things that may never even take place and happen, right? So the Lord said, he, know, he, he knows what you stand in need of, even before you ask. Therefore, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things shall be added to you. Now, that shall's just as strong, just as powerful as the shall's of Matthew 1, 21 that I gave you a while ago. Um, now, that's a wonderful text. That's a wonderful subject. And that's, that's the security of the God. You know, a social insecurity is what really social security is all about. I don't know of anybody on social security that still don't feel a little bit insecure. I mean, you're supposed, that's supposed to make you feel secure, right? Somehow or another is not getting a job done. But the Lord is our security. Not man, the Lord is our security. And the best way to have your necessities of life provided for you is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He says that these things shall be added to you. He didn't say all you want and those kind of things, but the things that you stand in need of, your food, your raiment, your shelter, and all these things, they'll be added unto you if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and put the Lord first in your life. I was very much blessed to be raised in a, in a, in a primitive Baptist home. And uh, my father was a tobacco farmer. And uh, my father and mother were thankfully were very faithful and dedicated members of the church. And I never had to worry about what I, where I was going to be on Sunday. I already knew. You know, and I tell people all the time, when January 1 comes, I know, Lord willing, 52 days a year where I'm going to be. I'm going to be in the house of God 52 days a year plus. But I'm talking about the 52 Sundays of the year. I'll, they're already marked out ahead of time. Lord willing, you know, if I'm not sick or something beyond my control, that's where I'm going to be. And there was this one couple that told me a few years ago, around January, they said, you know, we, we go, we've decided uh, we're going to try our best to be there every Sunday. Well, they got to February and they'd already missed the boat. I mean, they just didn't even get started good and fell by the wayside. <laughs> you know, that needs to already be determined ahead of time. But anyway, my dad set a great example. My other dad set a great example for me and my brother. 
He put the Lord first in their lives. Some of you knew my mother and father. They put the Lord first in word and example. And when Sunday come, work stopped. Sunday clothes put on, went to the house of God, brought company home with us, went home with somebody else or whatever. But the Lord came first. And the Lord blessed us immeasurably over the years. Set an example for your children and your grandchildren. Make sure they understand in your life that the Lord is the most important thing that there is. And his church and his kingdom, which he left us here in this world, are the most important things we can have in life. You know, somebody said that the old Baptists just don't have enough for the young folks. I'm going to tell you what they got for the young folks. They got for the young folks the same thing they got for the old folks. They got the same thing for the folks that's old and well-stricken in age. They got the same thing for the young folks, middle-aged folks, and all that. Now, of course, you know I've said before, and you probably heard me, there's no such thing as middle age. That's an invention of man. You're either young or you're old. That's the way it boils down to. David said, I once was young and now I'm old. Never seen the righteous forsaken with seed begging bread. When people ask me, well, how do I know when I move from the stage of being young to the stage of being old? I just tell them, you got to make that decision for yourself. I, my decision is made, brother. I'll admit I have moved from the not so being from the real young age. I'm not there anymore. Uh, I'm running the young stage, just a little bit past. <laughs> just a little, little bit past. But the Lord will take care of us. He, he's our security. He is our security. Now, when I read verses like that, when I read verses like He's able to give you much more. Than this, you might wonder at a time, I don't know where that's going to come from. How, how that's, how's that going to be? Don't worry about that. The Lord's going to keep his promise. His hand is not whacked short. He cannot say his, he's uh, nothing too hard for the Lord. And this is what the angel was telling Mary. If you go to uh, Luke chapter uh, 1, verse uh, 35, 6, and 7, you'll find where the angel comes to Mary and says that the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. And it says, the Holy Ghost shall overshadow thee, and the power of the high shall overshadow thee. And that holy thing that shall be born unto thee shall be called the Son of God. And your cousin Elizabeth is also, has also conceived, is going to bring forth a son who is called barren. And then the angel says, for with God, nothing is impossible. Now, when you read that, that ought to cause you to kind of stop and ponder something just for a moment. It's kind of the New Testament part of the Old Testament. Is anything too hard for the Lord? For with God, nothing is impossible. She just told Mary two things that were impossible apart from God. One, a virgin conceiving and bringing forth a son, impossible apart from God. Number two, Elizabeth, who was already called barren because she had not had a child. She was not going to be able to have a child. But God intervened on her behalf, and she had a child. Who's going to have a child. It's going to be, of course, John the Baptist. So he tells him there, here are two things that apart from God are impossible, but with God, nothing shall be impossible. When I read a statement like that, it ought to cause me just to stop right where I'm at and ponder that and let it soak into my head that there's nothing impossible for the Lord. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. The Lord can give me much more than anything I've ever thought I spent on his behalf. The God is God not only the hills, he's also the God of the plains and also the God of the valleys. He's all of that. In the, uh, a little bit further on, in Luke chapter 18, a rich young ruler comes to the Lord. 
And this rich young ruler's got the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I'm not going with the details of all that, but after it's all said and done, you're going to find where the Lord tells him to go and sell all that he has and give to the poor. And the Bible says he went away very sorrowful because he had great riches. I believe his sorrow was in, uh, you know, to the degree of his riches were. Great riches, great sorrow. He came to the right man, right question, got the right answer, but he went away very sorrowful. When he went away, the disciples asked the Lord a question. They said, well, then who can be saved? If this rich man cannot be saved, based upon what had taken place in the conversation, then who can be saved? And the Lord gave this answer. He says, with men, this is impossible. But with God, there's nothing that's impossible. All things are possible with God. So I tell you tonight, when it comes to our salvation apart from God, it's impossible. Man cannot pull himself up by his bootstraps, can he? Man has a depraved nature. He doesn't love God. He hates God. He says in his heart, there is no God. To deprive his countenance, he does not seek after God. He's described in detail in Romans chapter 3 as the poison of asp is under his lips, cursing and bitterness come forth from his mouth. His feet are swift to shed in blood, etc., etc. That kind of man's not interested in God, not interested in God whatsoever. With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And all the family of God, all the elect of God are being glory someday because God, my friend, did the impossible with men, but all things are possible with God. All things are. In the book of Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, the Lord tells the people that day, he says, your thoughts are not my thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. He's just telling us here that he doesn't think like we think. He doesn't perform like we perform. My thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. As the heavens are above the earth, that's a long ways, right? As the heavens are above the earth, he says, so are my ways and my thoughts above your ways and your thoughts. All through the Bible, we have illustrations of this. You remember over there in the sixth chapter of the book of Joshua? When Joshua and the Israelites are by Jericho, and Jericho is going to be the first challenge they have in taking the land of Canaan, a strong city, a fortified city, a city with great walls, and they're just sitting there looking at that city. And the Lord comes to Joshua, and he gives Joshua a plan that I know was not in the thoughts of Joshua. And it was not according to Joshua's ways and Joshua's thoughts to have such a plan as this. He tells Joshua what they're going to do. He tells Joshua, you're going to march around this city. You're going to march it around every day for six days. And on day number seven, you're going to go around it. And he tells them what order. It's going to be the men of war. And then you're going to have seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns. And then uh, you're going to have the Ark of the Covenant. And then you're going to have the people following them. This is the order you're going to go in. And you're not to say a word. You're not to make any noise with your mouth. These are instructions. Here's God's plan. I know that was not in the mind of Joshua. After he gives Joshua the plan, I just have a feeling, knowing human nature like I do, and I, I know it pretty good because I have one. 
And uh, I know human nature pretty good. I've been studying it for a long time. It's been bothering me for a long time. You know, if I could leave my human nature at home, I'd have left it at home. It traveled all the way down here with me. And there were several other drivers that found up knowing about it. <laughs> but anyway, and they let me know about theirs as well. It was, <laughs> it was give and take. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I just got a feeling somebody said, Joshua, uh, we need to have a talk. Uh, this is your plan. We're going to march around this city for seven days. This is your plan. We're not going to say anything. We're going to be quiet. Nothing come out of our voices, whatever. No, that's the plan. And on the seventh day, how many times are you going around? Well, we're going to go around seven times. And then after the seventh time, what's going to happen? And Joshua tells him, I, I know somebody had to have, to have a conversation with him. Just had to have. But Joshua carried out the plan because God's ways and his thoughts are much above our ways and our thoughts as the heavens are above the earth. So when I read something like that, it caused me to stop writing my tracks. And I think, well, who am I anyway? Who am I to think that I know better than God? Who am I to think my ways are better ways than his ways? You know, sometimes I'll be talking to somebody about the Bible and they'll say, well, you know, there's some subject in the Bible. And they say, well, in my opinion. I said, well, wait a minute. <laughs> this book does away with opinions. It's not based on your opinion. Or they'll say something like, well, the way I see it is not based on how you see it. It's not based on how I see it. It's based on what God says. Thus saith the word of God. But somehow or another, they come across to me as thinking that they got a little more insight than God does. That Bible says his thoughts and his ways much above ours as the heavens are above the earth. And so the plan was carried out. And you know what? It was successful, wasn't it? The walls of Jericho fell flat. God's ways and his, his, uh, his thoughts is far above that of Joshua. We find the same thing in the case of Gideon. Gideon had an army of 32,000 men. 32,000. Yet they were in captivity and bondage. And... The Lord heard their cries. He's going to deliver them. He calls the man by the name of Gideon. Gideon was by the wine press threshing wheat one day under the oak tree. And we find where the angel comes to him and tells him he's the man. He's going to deliver Israel out of the bondage. And uh, Gideon, he just couldn't believe it could be him. He, he doesn't feel that he's qualified one thing or another. But the point was, that was God's man. That's who God chose. That's not who a lot of other people would have chosen. That's who God chose. It's just like, I'll come back to that in just a minute. But it's just like when, uh, while I'm thinking about it over here in the book of Acts, you got Saul of Tarsus after he has his Damascus Road experience. He goes down to Damascus. God is going to call a man in the name of Ananias to preach the gospel to Saul of Tarsus. You know who I would have called? See, remember that Saul of Tarsus is a fire-breathing dragon. He's a persecutor of God's church. You know who I would have called? I would have called the apostle Peter. Peter's a rough, tough fisherman. Uh, Peter take care of Saul of Tarsus. He's a man for the job. God didn't choose him. Oh, I might have thought, well, let's go another direction. I'll just choose the Apostle John, the Apostle of love. He'll just love him to death. You know, he, he'll, he'll just be so kind and nice to him one thing. Nope, God didn't choose John. He didn't choose Matthew. He didn't choose Luke. He didn't choose any of the apostles. He chose a man by the name of Ananias, an unknown. His ways, his thoughts, much above ours, as the heavens are, Above the earth. Now we go back up here to Gideon's case. 
And he got 32,000 men. And the Lord says, it's, it's just too many. He said, if I deliver the enemy, the Midianites, into his hands, they'll say, look what we did. They'll fault themselves up. They'll be lifted up with pride. He says, too many. So he said, everybody's afraid. Turn around and go home. 22,000 turned around and left. We just got from 32,000 down to 10,000. The Lord says, it's, it's still too many. You know, how can you have too many people in an army? There's no such thing, is it? I've never known a nation yet to say, our army is too big, we got to cut down. I don't think you can have too many people in the army, except in this case. In this case, they did. Just got too many. He said, take them down to the river, let them drink. And those that lapped water like a dog, you put on one side and put the others on the other side. And there were 300 that lapped water like a dog. We've knocked the army down from 32,000 to 300. Over 99%. Now, knowing human nature like I know it, and I know it pretty good. <laughs> I'm persuaded. Somebody said, get him. We got to have a talk. Now, you mean we're going to go out with battle with 300 men? We had 32,000. And now we have 300. And that's what we're going to do? He says, that's what we're going to do. Because this is God's plan. And his ways and his thoughts are much above ours as heavens are above the earth. So he takes the 300 men, he divides them into three groups, 100 men here, 100 men here, and 100 men there. And I've always loved this statement. It said, every man stood round about the camp in his own place. See, I believe everybody has a place in the church. But we need to stay in our place, don't we? Amen. Problems happen when we get out of our place. <laughs> you know, I believe there's a place for everybody. And everybody had a place. And we find Gideon putting everybody in their place. And they got a, a trumpet in one hand, and they got a vessel and a, a lamp in the other hand, empty vessel with a light in it. And in the shout of Gideon, we find where they shouted, and they broke the pitchers, and the 300 men, when they shouted, the enemy fled, the enemy ran, and Israel was victorious because God's ways and his thoughts are much above our ways and our thoughts as the heavens are above the earth. When God chose the apostles, he didn't go among the elite. When God chose the apostles, he went around to the common people. That's why the Bible says the common people heard him gladly. He among the common people. And he chose fishermen. Most of them were fishermen. You know, people like that. That's why in the book of Acts, chapter 4, it says uh, they took notice that Peter and John uh, had been with Jesus. But the first thing they perceived, that these were ignorant and unlearned men. But they took notice they'd been with Jesus. That's exactly right. They'd been with Jesus all along the journey. They'd been with Jesus for three and a half years of his ministry. They'd been with Jesus uh, on the ship and in the storm. They'd been with Jesus, the mountain of transfiguration. They'd been with Jesus at the grave of Lazarus when he raised him from the dead. They'd been with Jesus when he performed all the miracles and done all the things that he did. Yeah, they'd been with Jesus, all right. And they were able to perceive that, even though they were ignorant and unlearned men. That is, they didn't have the education that they thought men ought to have to be, you know, chosen by Christ. God's ways and God's thoughts are much above ours as the heavens are above the earth. Amen. I close tonight from Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. And this one here is one that ought to cause you to stop right in your tracks. We find here where the Lord is speaking. He says, I'm Alpha and I'm Omega. I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end, which is, which was, and which is to come the Almighty. 
That's some interesting language as far as I'm concerned. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He's the first, he's the last, and he's everything in between. Everything in between. He's the first and he's the last. He is the beginning and he's the end. In a sense, all three of these statements are saying the same thing. So I'm Alpha and I'm Omega. I'm the first, I'm the last, I'm the beginning, I'm the end, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. There's never been a time that the Lord was not the Almighty. Never been a time. And of course, there's no such thing as past, present, and future with God. You understand that. He's not bound with time like we are. He's just telling us where we can understand. He says, I'm Alpha and Omega, first and last, beginning and the end. He says, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. That kind of sums it up, doesn't it? It took the Almighty to create the heaven and the earth, did it not? It'll take the all, he's the Alpha in that. He's also the Omega because he's going to bring it to an end, according to 2 Peter chapter 3. He's the author and finish of our faith, is he not? He's the Alpha and the Omega of that. Um, he's the author of our salvation. He's the Omega of our salvation. He's just everything. And so when I read that, I can remember reading that and just stopping, thinking, the Almighty. What a, what a name. It's mentioned eight times in the book of Revelation, over 50-some times in the Bible, where God calls himself the Almighty. And the very first time is in Genesis chapter 17, when he appeared to Abraham to tell him that he and Sarah were going to have that child. I think that's a pretty good way to introduce yourself. You're about ready to tell somebody 90 and 100 years old, you're going to have a child. He says, by the way, I'm the Almighty. I'm the Almighty. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Is the hand of the Lord waxed short? Is he able to give you far more than you've ever invested in the kingdom? Is he a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys as well? Is there anything that's not possible with the Lord? Is his ways and his thoughts much above ours as the heavens are above the earth? Is he not the Almighty who is and was and who is to come? See, if I didn't read the Bible, I wouldn't know any of that. To know that, i got to read the Bible, right? If I don't read the Bible, I'm not going to read those expressions. And when I'm facing adversity, when I'm facing uh, trials and tribulations about to get me down and get me down and depressed, I don't have anything to pull the lean on and to fall back on. But when I'm going through those times, I just think, Oh, Lord, you're the Almighty. Oh, Lord, there's nothing too hard for you to do. Oh, Lord, your hand is not waxed short. Oh, Lord, I know that you are everywhere present and nowhere absent. Oh, Lord, I know there's nothing impossible for you to do. If you enable a woman to conceive at 90, if you enable a virgin to conceive and bring forth a son into this world, if you uh, were able to deliver Gideon with 300 men and march those, that army around in Joshua's day and win the battle at Jericho, if you can do all that, I believe you can raise me up out of the dust and out of the dunghill, my friends, to, and give me a hope and give me strength and give me the power and the strength I need to face the challenges of another day. 